Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast. Each week, your host, Casey Haston, Director of Recruiting at VIP, will bring you valuable insights from thought leaders, introduce you to incredible companies, and bring you tips for landing your dream job from our team of executive recruiters at VIP. And now, Casey Haston. Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast, a podcast devoted to adding value to your career or candidate search, brought to you by VIP. I'm your host, Casey Haston. I'm an executive recruiter, director of recruiting with VIP, and your all-around hiring guru. And I am so fortunate that through doing this podcast, I have the opportunity to meet some really cool people from all around the world. And today is no different. So I'd like to welcome Richard Newman, founder of Body Talk and Body Language Expert. This is going to be fun. Body Talk helps global leaders in communication skills training with its own scientific peer-reviewed research to give you proven practical results. Richard delivers transformational change in how people communicate and I am just so excited to have this conversation with him today. So thanks for joining us, Richard. Thank you, Casey. It's great to be on the show. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And you know what? For the first time, I've been a little frazzle-dazzled this week, but I forgot to go back and see how we got connected. Do you remember how we got connected? Uh, I think it might be through Frank Agin. Uh, does that ring a bell? His name is coming up a lot today, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We just had um, a really great connection um, that was made with a a retired Navy SEAL. And it wasn't made directly Mm. through Frank Agin, but it was because Frank Agin connected me to somebody that connected me to somebody. And I just, I love the way Mm. connections can spiderweb. Yeah, he's one of the great connectors, I think, Frank. So he's, uh, yeah, he, I enjoyed being on his show and then he instantly said, there's a bunch of people you've got to meet. Uh, So that's just a great way to do things. And then the next thing you know, you've got like 10 emails with introductions and you're like, wow. And they're thorough. He's very thorough and very intentional with his introductions. Yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. So Richard, I know why I'm here talking to you today, but our audience doesn't. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So uh, essentially, I've been on a mission for the last uh, 40 years or so to, to figure out communication and to help people find their voice and be able to express themselves and get the results that they uh, desire. And the reason being that if I go back over these last four decades, essentially when I was younger, when I was four, going on to be about five years old, uh, my parents moved house and we meant to live in a, a new part of the country. So therefore I was going to a new school. And that was the first time when I started to realize there was something a little bit different about me. And I, I didn't really know what that was. And so uh, what I felt like in that time was that it was a bit like living in a glass bubble. I was trying to connect with the other children in the class around me and that wasn't working and I just didn't know why. And they all seemed to be able to talk to each other, but there was a disconnect for me. And so I quickly learned that I was a shy child. And then maybe sort of in my early 20s, I realized that I am highly introvert across that sort of spectrum of introvert to extrovert. I'm very much on the introvert end of that. But it was only really uh, last year when I finally got diagnosed as being autistic. And suddenly I thought, oh, that's what it is. That's the piece where I felt like I was sort of a step behind in communication with people for so many years, trying to figure out the on-ramp to a conversation 
because essentially what it means for people who are not sure around this, and there's many different people, there's a large spectrum of people who uh, are autistic, but what it means in my case is that I have a different instinct around communication. So for me, it's a bit like, you know, if you look at fish in a goldfish bowl and you think, wow, they're just swimming around or they can breathe underwater. How do you do that? And that's kind of what it was like for me, looking at other people, communicating, making friends, having banter with each other, building relationships. And so around about my um, sort of uh, 15th, 16th birthday, I started to decide that I would uh, passionately read books around communication. So I started reading books and that took me on a journey of reading about 200 books on the field of communication around body language, tone of voice, uh, storytelling, stage presence, gravitas, all these other things. And then uh, during that time, when I was 18 years old, I decided to do something a bit different. My friends were going off to university and I instead decided to go and live in the foothills of the Himalayas, where I was living in a Tibetan monastery, teaching English to Tibetan monks. And they wanted to find their voice so they could find sponsorship and support their way of life uh, outside. And when I got there, I realized they didn't speak any English at all. They spoke Tibetan, Nepali, and Hindi. And so I had to figure out a way to communicate with them non-verbally. And so I, you know, I sat them in their little classroom, which was basically the, the back of the kitchen. We didn't have any electricity. We had to use it, you know, use candles through a power cut. And I started to use body language to connect with them. And over the period of six months, I then taught them how to have a good conversation in English. And I was really moved by how much communication can be done non-verbally. I came back to the UK and studied acting for three years so that I could really understand more things about how to sit, how to stand, how to move, how to breathe, how to tell a story in a way that impacts an audience. And then started up my company by chance, really. It was just a hobby at the beginning to help people find their voice. And it's led me to build a team of 20 people now where we get about 2,000 bookings per year to help people all the way around the world uh, to, uh, to find their voice and get the results they really deserve. So many people. I mean, mm -hmm. to be able to have that kind of impact on the world, that's incredible. I want to go back to a couple of points that you just made that I thought were really interesting. Um, number one, you said you're like an extreme introvert, right? So let's say yeah. you're over here. You can't even see my hand now. I'm over here. On this end of extrovert, you know, I'm like, people are like, do you ever just not enjoy being around people? And I'm like, no, I like people. I like to be in the room with people and I like to talk to people and I like to hear what they have to say. But I, I did yeah. not, I did not remember, or maybe this didn't come up in our earlier conversation that you had been diagnosed, diagnosed autistic. Yeah. Yeah. And this was something that it was sort of coming for a, a period of uh, a few years where I, there was just sort of like little glimpses of ideas of maybe I might need to take a look at this because uh, what's interesting about this is that the the number of people who are encompassed under a diagnosis of autism are um, it's, it's very much changed from where it was in the 1980s, 1990s. Mm -hmm. And so that spectrum is now very broad, encompasses a lot of things. And so uh, for, for me, when I started to hear these ideas about you might want to go and get this checked, I thought, well, hang on a second. I'm, I'm sure that I'm not autistic. I know what that looks like because I remember learning about it in school. But mm -hmm. the diagnosis now you know, covers a lot more things. And so uh, essentially what happened on my podcast going back 
maybe five years ago, there was a lady who I interviewed and she was a specialist in early childhood communication. And she said that essentially uh, you've got 90% of people who they develop their communication skills and th there's no challenges. Then you've got two and a half percent of people who have a permanent communication challenge like permanent hearing loss. And she said there's the other seven and a half percent and that's who she works with. And I said, well, tell me what the traits are of that seven and a half percent. And she started to talk about it. And it was only after I'd finished recording the podcast, I was driving her to the, uh, the train station and I said to her, I think I'm in that seven and a half percent. And she said, no, you can't be Richard. You get up on stage and you do these big keynote speeches and you interact with me and so on. And she said, no, no, you can't be. And I said, well, talk me through it. You tell me what I'd need to have to be in there. And we eventually realized, no, actually I am in there, but I've, <laughs> I've learned a whole bunch of strategies through the years around communication that have allowed me to be effective at communicating with neurotypical people, uh, which, meant that it was much less likely that I would you know, be uh, diagnosed. So anyway, she said, you should go check it out. And then I, I got the full diagnosis with a lady who's been diagnosing people for 35 years. And, uh, and she, yeah, she said that she had to go through a, a long diagnosis process with me to figure out if, if I was included there or not and finally concluded that I was. Uh, but for me at that moment, I was like, oh, right, this is it. This is what's driven me for so many years. I've always been passionate about finding my voice and then helping other people find their voice. And it's been this internal driver all the way through. But what's been really special about it is it's kind of been almost like a hidden superpower for what I now do, because it's allowed me to see communication as an outsider, where I can look at neurotypical people. And for so many years, I was thinking, okay, what's working here in this communication? What's not working? How is it that this person has gravitas and that person doesn't? What are the sort of the building blocks that you need in order to make things successful? To the point at which I had my own um, uh, scientific research published and peer reviewed uh, in the journal Psychology going a few years back where I said, I think these are the elements that people need to have presence or confidence or gravitas. Can we study it? It took us 18 months to design this study. We worked with the University College of London uh, and uh, the professor of psychology there, Adrian Furnham, who's world renowned for his work. He's published over a thousand uh, studies. And we created this piece, which he and his colleague, uh, Alastair McClelland, who's head of statistics there, they said at the end, is some of the most uh, irrefutable and outstanding results they'd ever seen. Where wow. we showed, essentially what we showed is that it, no matter what your gender is, no matter what skin color you, are, you have, and no matter where you are in the world, there's a couple of simple things that you can change, a few simple behaviors that you can take on, where if you go into a meeting, and just imagine this, you say the same words, you're wearing the same clothes, you are the same person, but you change a couple of simple behaviors, you can increase the number of people convinced by your message by 42%. You can increase the number of people who think you're a good leader by 44%, and you can increase the number of people who would vote for you in an election by around 58%. And it was just by looking at these couple of small behaviors that everybody can use, that everybody can put into action uh, day after day. And honestly, when we started this project, first of all, the team there said, you might prove nothing, just be prepared. If you get 5% different somewhere, be very excited. And there we were looking at these results thinking, wow, this is far more than we expected. But it was an analysis that I was able to do because I was just looking at it from a completely different lens than it had been applied to that situation. And what I love is sh sharing that with clients and saying, you can do this and I can teach you how to do it in the next 30 minutes. And suddenly they, you know, they get that level of impact they've always been looking for. Okay, I have a question for you. Well, I got lots of questions, mm. but this is a personal question, okay? <laughs> So if I were, let's just say, let's just make something up. Maybe, maybe it's made up. 
If I were to say that I was working on a plan for a really big project that I need to get buy-in from the people mm. that write the check, yeah, what's one of those little things you would recommend I change to get the yes? Great, yeah, great question. So uh, one of the simple things that people can do that we, that we looked at, which again works uh, no matter where you are, is if you're looking to say, get, get buy-in, get support, get a check from somebody, they're going to be looking at, well, how strong, how strong is your idea? How strong are you as a person mm -hmm. that we should back and support? Because we are tribal creatures. So we're, we're looking for who's the pack leader in this situation. In other words, you know, in modern terms, who's the thought leader here? Who should I buy into? Who should I really believe? And one of the simple ways to embody that is around gravity. So we, we have this term gravitas, which simply comes from a sense of gravity working with you, not against you. So it's something that you can embody easily. What most people do is they embody anti-gravitas. So imagine that sort of situation that you've described there, where you go into a situation, it's important, you're pitching an idea, you need support from people, what tends to happen is that people get nervous. Uh, they maybe feel a little bit uh, flustered or off balance. They might describe it. And what you tend to see is people standing or sitting in a position that is off center. So if you're standing, it's sort of quite simple to see where they might be leaning off on one hip. Or if you're sitting in a chair, you might be sort of shifting from one side across to the other. Sometimes you see people like literally swaying, going backwards and forwards from one position to the other. Or even if they're standing, they might find that they've got their legs are very close together, even their feet touching. Or sometimes you see this, which I always find slightly bizarre, people slightly crossing their feet over, in fact, in front of them, because that sort of feels comfortable. And some people are completely unaware of the fact they're doing it. Their legs are just giving away the fact that they feel nervous about the situation. But what that creates is a position of them being a pushover. And what I mean by that is if, if you went up to that person, place one hand on their shoulder and give them a quick nudge, they fall over because gravity is working against them and they look like a pushover. Now, how that's translated oh, in the communication is the person hears your idea and you say, honestly, you should believe me, I'm gonna see this project through to the end. But subconsciously, they're looking at you and thinking, you visually look like a pushover. And if you're a pushover, you won't be able to run the project. There's no way I should support mm -hmm. you because the money's going to the wrong place. And so they get in that feeling. So the way to, to adjust that is think about it this way. If you think about any sport that you could watch, now, because I'm quite tall, I, my, my favorite sport is basketball, but you can choose any sport. If you take a basketball player who's about to take a really important free throw, this is the one that could maybe win them the match. Do they stand off to one side or maybe sway a little bit as they're doing it? Absolutely not. What do they do? They stand centered. And when they're centered, gravity is working with them. And I remember this because when I was at high school and I was playing basketball, there was one point where I was about to take a free throw and my coach literally came up, pushed my shoulder and just shoved me over. And I got up and I said, what are you doing? He said, you can't take a free throw like that. You're a pushover. And so I stood up and he was like, what do you mean? And so he got me to a position where I was like, okay, I'm grounded now, which means having your feet generally about shoulder width apart. You've got your weight balance between your left foot, right foot, your toes and your heels. You are grounded and centered. And from that position, people instinctively know whether they're thinking about it or not. They know if they came and give you a quick nudge on your shoulder, you're not going anywhere. You have gravitas. What they then associate subconsciously is they think you have strength, you have command, therefore this idea that you're sharing has strength. It has command and therefore I should buy into you as the thought leader. And so just getting gravity working on your side, which a great actor on stage or screen, they'd get gravitas from that sort of physical position that makes you think, wow, this person is so commanding, where does it come from? So that's one of the quick wins that you can use to empower your idea subconsciously in the minds of the people you're speaking to. 
Okay, so let's say that I'm a job seeker because, you know, primarily our audience are job seekers or those wanting to build, you know, a different career path. But I'm going in for the job interview. I stand up straight. I'm grounded. But now I have to sit down. How do I continue Mm. to portray that? Yeah, so from a sitting position, the simple piece to do is, first of all, you want to think about having your feet grounded, if you can, uh, underneath you, so your nice uh, upright posture. But the next piece to take a look at is your sternum. So your sternum is the center of the chest plate here, and you want to make sure that you've just got a slightly elevated sternum. So what people tend to do, and this is key in job interviews too, if you don't think the job interview is going well, what are you going to do? Then you might internally feel... Uh, deflated and you might sigh or you might do it silently and just sort of drop at the sternum and as soon as you drop at the sternum you look deflated you look like you've expired from the conversation and people think I just don't really believe in this person whereas how do you know if you're speaking to someone and you think wow this person's really inspired how would you possibly know that if this is somebody new that you're interviewing for for a job the way that you know it is they get halfway through a sentence and they go They breathe in, they lift the sternum, and you think, wow, this person's inspired. I wonder what they're going to say next. And so if you just simply sit in a position where you've just slightly elevated your sternum, you're sitting in a position that represents, I am inspired, and they're much more likely to pay attention to you. So you can realign your your body language there. You can also think about gestures. Now, this is one (laughs) that's so funny. Across all the years of doing this, so many people have said to me, hey, Richard, uh, I've got an important meeting, interview pitch that's coming up, and and I want to make a good impression. What should I do with my hands? And I often say to them, you know, what do you mean? You're perfectly capable of using your hands. You know, nobody goes into a bar to meet their friends on a Friday night and says, guys, I don't know what to do with my hands. I can't seem to figure <laughs> out how to use them. You just you go in there, they say, how was your week? Can you tell these stories and then these gestures that sort of come out naturally as you're telling that to your friends? So essentially what you need to do is what you would naturally do subconsciously with your hands of expressing yourself and engaging and interacting with people, that happens subconsciously. When you get self-conscious, you need to get back in the rhythm of doing what you would have been doing if you are uh, doing it subconsciously in a way that's more carefree. But a simple couple of ways to do that, just to get yourself kick-started, is to think about the difference between palms down and palms up gestures. So if you're doing an interview and the person says to you something along the lines of, um, what makes you think that you're the right person for the job? Just notice the difference if I do these two versions. If I do it palms up and say, well, I just sort of think, you know, I'm the right person here for the job and I think that you should give me this and I feel like I'll be the right member of your team. It looks like you're questioning everything that you're saying. But if you do palms down, now palms down will instantly start to engage a different part of your voice because the body and voice are intrinsically connected. Then you say, I feel like I would be the right person for this team. I feel like working here is the right place for me and I'm absolutely committed to this job. Suddenly palms down, it gives that sense of um, physical reassurance that there's no question about this. These are statements that I'm delivering. So you can start to think about in interviews, in conversations, am I aiming to uh, ask the person an opinion in a way that would be palms up or am I giving them a statement that would be palms down? The added secret benefit behind this, some nice study uh, studies that were done by Susan Golden Meadow at the University of Chicago showed that if you gesture more frequently, there's so many nerve endings going from the hands up to the brain that it stimulates cognitive processing and so you'll be able to think and react more quickly to questions and give more intelligent answers which they tested out on mathematicians. So it, it's giving you that benefit of being able to think about 
good things to say in an interview or in a pitch or in all sorts of meetings and situations. And, and beyond that benefit, in case people think, oh, I don't want to gesture too much, there was a great study uh, that was done on TED Talks. So there's so many TED Talks now and TEDx Talks that uh, there's so many done on this, just the same subject and sometimes mm -hmm. virtually the same title. And so a study was done on this, which showed, I think this is Vanessa Van Edwards and her team uh, looked at this, where they found if you look at 10 TED Talks uh, that have similar sort of uh, uh, titles, you look at the other ones that have a very low number of viewers behind this. The ones that got the high viewers versus the ones that got the low uh, viewers the ones with a high number of viewers have double the number of gestures in there. We like it when people move their really? hands because it's visually engaging us. When yeah. we go to the cinema and think about how many times do they change the camera angle? They change the camera every, every sort of three seconds. They're changing the camera angle to keep you visually engaged in that movie that's two hours. And so if you sit, if you do the opposite, you sit on your hands and you, you're trying to talk to people, you're instantly less visually engaging because there's less going on there that would help people understand your message. So gesturing is a good thing. It's worthwhile knowing what angle to, to direct your gestures in, but it'll allow you to speed up uh, your thought processing and, and give better answers in the uh, in the journey of that conversation. You know, whenever, let's say, I, I do it instinctively. I had somebody come up to me one time. I was talking and somebody came up from across the way and they grabbed my hands and they're like, can you talk now? And I'm like, no. I can't talk without my hands, you know? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It's so interesting because intuitively, and I love brain hacks, and I love that you're sharing that because that is a brain hack. Um, I have been coaching my candidates whenever they're especially doing video interviews um, to use their hands, you know, to actively engage. Yeah. And I also encourage them, if they can, to do, I'm not questioning. Now, now you got me like so in my head about my <laughs> gestures. Um, but I also encourage them to do their interview standing if they can, because mm. I think yeah. that brings a new energy, especially like, I mean, if I'm doing news interviews or if I'm doing something where I'm not on camera, I'm pacing the whole time because that's where I get mm. my energy. Right. And so that's what I encourage my candidates to do when they go for those interviews. And now I know why, but I'm going to add this part. I'm gonna, that's a mm. good one <laughs> to the ingester part. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, fabulous. Um, so what's one other little trick that you could tell us about really quickly? Because these are really good. Yeah. Uh, so so other pieces that I'll come on to, uh, which, which are critical, is that I worked out for a long period of time that I was working with people around their actions to shift their results. And uh, I, I realized after a period of time, there were some people I was working with where they'd say to me, look, the thing is, Richard, I actually now know, based on working with you, I know what I'm supposed to do physically. I know what I'm supposed to say. I just can't do it. And I'd be thinking, well, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? You, you know what to do, you're not gonna do it. And the challenge was there was a piece around their beliefs and their mindset where they're just not able to physically get themselves into a state where they could then apply these methods. And so I, I wanted to think, well, what's a quick thing that I can do for people that if they're in the waiting room just before they're about to go into an interview or if they're counting down the minutes before they need to turn on their webcam for a virtual interview, what could they actually do that would get them in a position where they are best able to uh, perform at their best? And so I looked all the way back to my days as an actor. And what I learned by studying acting in this brilliant London uh, drama school is that uh, part of it we were sort of looking at, well, how do you have 
emotions on stage when you need to do performance after performance and we learn to do this through your breath and so you can program yourself you can learn how to do this to cry on cue or to laugh on cue based on a breathing rhythm that is associated with those things and so you can uh, go into <laughs> this sort of breathing rhythm that allows you then to get tearful to, to cry and then you change the breathing breathing rhythm oddly the breathing rhythm is the reverse when you laugh you sort of you do it the other way around and you can do that to you know to sigh or to look like you're surprised you, you do all those things related to breath to change your emotion so you can actually do that before you go into an interview or before you go into a pitch if you're thinking okay i've now got richard's body language tips or whatever else that i'm going to work on how do i get to the state where i can genuinely apply it and not look like it's just sort of nail varnish put on top but it's really genuinely coming from mm -hmm. me one of the breathing tips you can do, it's called box breathing, which oh, is a rhythm going through uh, 5552 is the breathing rhythm I like. So some people like it completely equal. The one that I've used for more than two decades now, 5552, which is breathe in for five, hold for five, breathe out for five and hold for two. Now, when you do this, if you do it for 90 seconds, what you're doing is you can shift yourself from the sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight system, across to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is your state of rest and digest. What you're also doing in the process is you're giving yourself your primary fuel. Your primary fuel as human beings is oxygen. You're also slowing down your heart rate. And when you process lots of oxygen, oxygen chemically burns off adrenaline. And so you get to a place of rather than being sort of in this nervous agitated state, where you get to a place where you think I am in complete command and control of this situation. I feel well fueled as a person. So I feel much more relaxed and I'm able to go in there and think, okay, I'm gonna have the gravitas. I'm gonna use the gestures here and you know all the other strategies they could uh, put forward. But until you get yourself in the right state, it's very difficult to put the other pieces uh, into play. So I encourage people to do this. It was really nice over the lockdown where lots of people were doing like virtual job interviews. There were two different people who uh, sent me messages on LinkedIn uh, from you know, different parts of my career, so going back years. Both of them said to me, I'm so pleased that I worked with you years ago, Richard, because mm. I just had this virtual job interview and I was really stressed and I suddenly remembered 5552. And it was so bizarre to me that two different people had applied the same thing. They went into this virtual job interview and both of them had then been uh, offered these jobs they were looking for. So it's one of those simple things you can remember, work on your breathing, control your state, and then put your actions into place. I think that's probably the best advice right there is the box breathing because, and, and I recommend to my candidates to take a deep breath before they go in, but I think I'm gonna start doing the box. I, I've just learned so many new tips and tricks my candidates should be so thankful to you because they are going to nail every <laughs> single interview after this. So I do, I do have another question for you though. Do you think some people are more sensitive to nonverbal cues than others? Mm, yeah, great question there. So, I mean, this, this has been proven quite well in the research that uh, first of all, women tend to be more sensitive to nonverbal communication than men. And so that's based on the, there's differences in the way that our brains are wired. And so if you go way, 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 way back and you think about, you know, what were the tasks in the tribes? The tasks in the tribe is that the men were sent off to go and hunt and the women were in the village uh, making sure that everything was working around food and the social relationships. So men were side by side, shoulder to shoulder, 
facing outwards, looking for things that they could hunt, that they could bring back as food. And so there's very little of the sort of reading each other's nonverbal signals. They're much more focused on looking at one particular thing in front of them and building sort of rapport shoulder to shoulder. Whereas women were more likely to be around uh, the fire or in sitting in circles in huts and building up the social communication, which was critical to survival. If you if you were not part of the uh, you know the the social fabric of a tribe, that that was devastating for your chances mm -hmm. of survival. And so they had to build it up for that sense. So there's partly some of that that, that we need to take into account. The other piece in terms of people being good at reading nonverbal signals is if people have come from a background or childhood where they were in danger in some way. So they may have been in a challenging uh, home situation, a background of abuse of some sort, where they needed to read when their, uh, their parent came home late at night, yes. having maybe been out drinking. They needed to read, okay, is this person going to harm me? Are they about to fall asleep? Like, what do I need to know here? And so they get very, very good at reading nonverbal signals. So, uh, you know, so, so, so what do you do if, if that's not your, your case? So for me, for example, uh, I'm male and I had a very comfortable childhood. So, you know, how do you build up your skills there? Well, there are ways to do it. You know, you can, you can build up your knowledge through reading good books on the topic and putting that into practice and putting it into observation, which is something that I've been doing for decades now, of just you know reading what I think is useful, looking at good research behind this, and then seeing where I can notice this uh, day to day. And I would encourage people to spend time where you're interacting with people non-verbally. I had a great opportunity to do this, which you can't always do, but if you do, it's, it's a great thing to do. Of course, I did it with the monks, but I, had a, I went on a retreat uh, recently, maybe four years ago. And as part of this, they said, we're gonna do a bit of a sort of a, sort of uh, open eye meditation where for the next three hours you're not allowed to speak to each other but you can interact and that was kind of an interesting instruction because we then we went and had lunch together and it was like a communal lunch there's a little platter set out on the table but you couldn't say to anybody could you please pass this to me and so we're sort of interacting with each other non-verbally and what I noticed through the process is I suddenly understood the people who were around me in a way that I didn't understand them when there was the constant sort of chitter-chatter uh, banter going back and forth where I was thinking, okay, what do they say? What